Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up our text of Genesis 45, starting in verse 9. We are looking at the concept of reconciliation and hope here as all is being revealed to the brothers of Joseph as they come into the land and Joseph reveals himself. And we have seen, first of all, in verses 1 to 8, that having a proper view of the sovereignty of God will enable the believer to be reconciled with others. And that's very important. God can use compassion to motivate the believer to pursue reconciliation, 1 to 3. And we noted that this was primarily on Joseph's part. Obviously, there's a lot of pain there and a lot of things, but he has dealt with them in a proper way, and he has compassion on others. He has compassion on his father. He has uh, he displays that compassion, and he also has a right a theological underpinning to everything. He uh, notes accurately that God's plans can prove unsettling at first. Uh, well, his brothers notice that. They are uncomfortable, but then he begins to forecast what we're going to see later on as the book closes, that uh, there is a means of reconciliation and forgiveness. You can't skirt around the truth. You can't cover that up and pretend it's something else. So he is accurate in his depiction, verse 4, as we talked about. But we also see that forgiveness is easier when it takes into account God's sovereignty, verses 5 to 8. So there is a means to reconciliation and forgiveness. He said, you sold me, but God actually sent me. And uh, the trial, as they see, is going to last even longer. So now that we pick it up here in verse 9, we see that forgiveness is a pathway to full reconciliation. Let's take a moment here and begin to work through the text. So remember what's happening, because we didn't actually end it at the end of a paragraph or anything like that. It was just right in the middle of everything. I mean, as far as paragraphs concern, you know, there's one that starts in verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. And that's when he reveals himself. And we worked through all that. The famine has been in land these two years, but there are yet five years where there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me forward uh, before you. It was not you who sent me, but God. So we just, we just kind of ended it there, right? He's made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, ruler over the land of Egypt. So now he's going to say in his next breath, next sentence, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, 
After that, his brothers talked with him. All right, forgiveness is the pathway to full reconciliation. We see here in verses 9 to 13 that apart from forgiveness, the next steps would have been impossible. In order for this to happen, for the entire family to come down and for them to dwell uh, in unity together, there has to be full uh, reconciliation. There has to be forgiveness. And that is very crucial to this discussion. Now that there has been forgiveness, they don't need to kind of tread lightly anymore. They don't need to lie any longer. They can speak the truth about everything that happened. And the brothers are charged to return to Egypt and tell their father exactly everything that has happened. Go there. Tell dad what you have seen. Benjamin, you are my brother. You go and you tell him what you have seen, that you have heard from me that I am alive. Tell them everything. There's going to have to be a little bit of rehashing. Probably, probably, this is just a guess here because the scriptures don't say Jacob's going to have some words to say with his other sons. But again, after 20 years of pain and sorrow, is it really worth causing more hurt and division? He's probably just going to be happy to hear that his brother's alive and that God has used this for his own sovereign purposes. And of course, verses 14 and 15, reconciliation brings about unity, right? Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and then he kissed his brothers, all of his brothers, and wept upon them. Now we're seeing reconciliation. Now we're seeing unity. We're seeing weeping of joy. Not all weeping, obviously, is of sorrow. There's great emotion here, And it reminds me of what Solomon said and the wisdom that God gave him in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there is a time for this. And, uh, you know, we, we see that. And so we don't need to stifle our emotions and, and be what is stereotypically called puritanical. Uh, there is a time for the release of these emotions and to let that out and to have full expression to the joy mixed with the grief and the anguish and the sorrow that's all been there for all these years, and it's all coming forward. And what a wonderful time. Uh, It would have been incredible to be there for that. Now, as we move on to verse 16 and verses 16 to 20, we learn that God rewards his faithful servants. And we're going to focus back in on Joseph here. Joseph's been in the land, and they're already seeing the value of having somebody who has a relationship with God. He accurately uh, told them of the incoming years of plenty before the famine and planned accordingly, and they know about the famine, and so they're very much indebted to him. Of course, he's already risen to such a high position. But the interesting thing is, is now he's going to be rewarded even more so for his faithfulness. And it will be in the eyes of unbelievers. Remember, these Egyptians do not serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, They're just happy that their lives are spared. So that's an interesting, you know, as we work through this, an interesting aside here that very often, and I've seen this, this is anecdotal, but sometimes God will use unbelievers to bless believers. And sometimes they'll do it and say, look, I don't believe in God and I'm giving you this money. God's not or something like that. And I've I've seen that in other people's lives. I've even experienced that uh, on occasion, very rarely, 
uh, firsthand. And it's just interesting because God can use everybody because the earth is the Lord's, as the scriptures say, in the fullness thereof, the people and those who dwell therein. He can use anything and everything on earth to bring about his will and even to bless those with whom he is pleased. And we see that here. So let's take a moment and read verses 16 to 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So what we see here is that God rewards his faithful servants. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants, those were the servants of Pharaoh, that Joseph's brothers had come. They know that he's an outsider. They know that he had come from prison. Remember, you have the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer realized his transgression after a couple of years had passed, and he had forgotten all about Joseph. And they call Joseph out of prison. No one knew, you know, no, no one was pretending that anything was different. He had come out of prison. He's not an Egyptian. And so now they meet his brothers. There's no facade here. There's no pretending. They just are happy that he has relatives, he has family, and now he's getting to be reunited. So it pleased them. This is wonderful news. And then Pharaoh actually gives Joseph an order, very unusual in the midst of all the authority that he had given him, because his role since appointing Joseph to this position has been to sit back and let Joseph take total control. He's not issuing him any orders. Joseph is really as he says, the Lord of the land. <laughs> Remember uh, what he said to his brothers, right? He said this back in verse nine of chapter 45 here, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. So, you know, he really has. So Pharaoh hasn't really been in a position of giving him commands. I mean, he could. And when he finally breaks the silence as the one who is over Joseph and all this, what does he command him to do? He commands him to go and bring his father. And and not just that, don't just go get your father. He says, take the best of the land. Uh, this is interesting here uh, because the command isn't just to be reunited. It's literally take the best of everything. In other words, there's a tacit acknowledgement here, an unspoken acknowledgement, if you will, in, in argumentation and logic. And even in writing, we call this an enthymeme that that he recognizes that they wouldn't even be there were it not for Joseph. So you get the best of the land and that's a small price to pay in Pharaoh's eyes, because here is the guy who's responsible for everybody being alive right now. It's kind of a reminder of when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30. Right, He says, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 20, Pharaoh had not gotten back to ruling since Joseph was still doing so well. So very interesting there. Continued reward for being faithful. And this really comes ultimately from God.
Verses 21 and 24, then, as we keep moving through the text, believers should dutifully execute their new offices when they are given them. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So we see Joseph here, first of all, doing all that Pharaoh had commanded him. Obviously, even though the brothers are still probably in somewhat of a state of shock, they know that Joseph is the Lord of the land. They've already had interaction with him before, and uh, they're going to do everything that he tells them. But now he is one under authority as well. Joseph is obeying Pharaoh. He's sending them with wagons, with all these provisions, and all of this is also going to serve to uh, further validate their story as they go back to their father. Remember, he had already told them, I want you to go back and tell my father that Joseph is alive and all of these things. Well, when they come back and they have way more than just the food that they need, they have the riches of the land, they have the wagons from Pharaoh, they have all of this ready to go and more. They have all the money that they returned with and more. They have all the clothing they returned with and more. This is going to serve to further validate their story. Look, uh, you're not going to believe this, Dad, but Joseph is actually alive. We didn't actually know that either. We're just in as much shock as you are. But look, here's the evidence. Look at all this. This is not what we had gone to Egypt to get. And look what we have come back with. It's time to move. And it's time to enjoy the protection of God. Believers should dutifully execute their new offices when they are given them. So Joseph's doing what he's been commanded. But we also see here at the very end of this, uh, that believers still need to be admonished to put off old habits. Verse 24, do not quarrel on the way. Very, very important here that that is their old habit and probably, uh, probably insightful as he is recognizing what could happen on the journey back, that argumentation. Well, whose idea was it anyway to sell him into slavery? And, you know, why did we lie to dad and all those other things? And he says, hey, yeah, let's just let it go. Don't quarrel on the way. Very good. Very wise insight there. Now we pick up the text in verses 25 to 28 the very last verses of the chapter, and we see this, that reconciliation provides hope. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Again, just like we had talked about in the verses leading up to this, everything that Pharaoh had commanded was ultimately, sovereignly, providentially uh, planned by the Lord to make sure that Jacob understands what is going on. Reconciliation, therefore, provides hope. Speak the truth. The brothers are done lying. 
there's no reason to cover any of this up. Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Uh, we don't, like I said, we could speculate a long time on what other nuances of conversation may have taken place there. But the core truths are right there. The core things that Joseph is alive. He's the ruler of the land of Egypt, verse 27. And then he sees the evidence, right? He hears the words of Joseph. You know, we didn't make this up. Th these are his words. And then he sees the wagons. I think the wagons play actually a very important role in this. It'd be one thing to hear and to hear the testimony of all the brothers. Are they all conspiring? I mean, G Benjamin's not really, he doesn't have a cause to lie or anything like that, but you can't make up uh, the wagons that are sent from Egypt. Uh, there's no other explanation for them other than somebody very, very high up sent them. And that makes the story correlate uh, very well. So they see, he sees the evidence that backs up this far-fetched story and the truth combined with evidence gives hope. And that's what we see the chapter ending with. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. Hard to imagine what all he went through. As you look in verse 26, his heart became numb. Uh, that would just be so hard to process. You've been dealing for 20 years with the idea that you've lost a child, which is just unimaginable for any parent to, to experience the death of a child. And to count that child as gone, never having closure though, because the body was never found and things like that, but you just have never heard anything. And then all of a sudden to hear that your, your son is still alive, that would be hard to deal with. And now you see this evidence and you process it and it does revive hope. Now by point of application here, just application. This isn't the meaning of the text. We've, we've worked through the meaning of the text, but by application, we're talking about a far-fetched story, an incredibly far-fetched story with evidence. And you combine those two together, the story, but the evidence that accompanies it, and that gives hope. Well, isn't that really the message of the gospel? We are saying to people around us, and, and we recognize, okay, we have truths in the scripture. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Um, there's a spiritual element to the world that a lot of people are, are working hard to not recognize and not acknowledge in their lives. So that's a problem. But more than that, we tell people that God created everything that sin entered into the world. And the only record we have is what God has given us because that happened so early on, but God has given us record of not only his creation, but how sin entered into the world. He's given us record of how, of who he is, that he's holy. He has no sin. And we understand that he's just. And so he must punish sin. And then we say, but the second person of the triune Godhead left his eternal heaven, the heavenly fellowship, <laughs> fellowship with himself, with the father and the Holy spirit and came to earth and took on flesh. I mean, this is a far fetched story. We have evidence though that backs this up. We have the story of Mary being visited by an angel. And she says dogmatically, as we think through this, that, you know, the story begins in Luke that virgin or the angel comes to a virgin. And this is a, a this, this word Parthenu, uh, Parthenos, 
doesn't just mean young woman, but literally a virgin who's not known anyone. And then after she receives the news, she actually responds with a different word, not Parthenos. And she says, how will this be seeing that I have not, and you could literally translate that not known a man again, a far fetched story, but it, it makes it into the historical record. And the historical record also bears out Jesus of Nazareth and the works that he did not just his teaching, but you know, there's a reason in the Bible goes through the gospels that, that he tells people that their sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees have a real problem with that because nobody can forgive sins except God alone. Even the Pharisees as self-righteous as they are, they don't go around telling people that their sins are forgiven, but Jesus does. And Jesus says that he is the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the father, but by him. And we have all this incredible things that are happening. And then he says, uh, that it must be that he is allowed to go to Jerusalem. His disciples at first are trying to, to stop him, right? Go back and read Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. And, and they don't, they don't like that. And he says, no, it has to be this way. The son of man must go and be delivered over and crucified, died. And on the third day, he must rise again. And now we have the evidence of that. We have no body that's ever been found. What we have is an empty tomb. That's what we have over against all the other religions of the world. We have somebody, we have God who created everything, has become one of us and has paid the penalty for sin and by his own power has resurrected himself from the dead. And we have an empty tomb. He is alive. Jesus is alive. And that crazy story, right? That far-fetched story is backed up by evidence, backed up by the empty tomb, backed up by uh, all the years of people holding to this gospel story. And the more we study it, the more evidence we find for it, that the story is true. There's validation in all of it. And, and we could go on and on. We could talk about this for an hour or two or three because it, the, the evidence is just overwhelming. It's a far-fetched story, but there's evidence there. And what is the last point of this? That the truth, this far-fetched story, but is true combined with the evidence that we see all around us, what does that provide for us? Hope, right? It gives us hope. Jesus said that we could have forgiveness of sins if we believed in him. And he took the penalty for sin in his own body on the cross. And if we believe that he took the penalty for sin, uh, for our own sin, and believe that, that he paid that price that we can be forgiven because of what he did, not because of what he, that what we do, then we can have the assurance of forgiveness of sin. We can have the promise of eternal life. It gives us hope, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And it's a far-fetched story combined with evidence that gives hope, just like we see in a very, very small part here at the end of Genesis 45. I hope that was an encouragement to you. Obviously, we're going to end there and we'll pick up our discussion in Genesis 46 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.